the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today I'm talking with Wing Commander Retired, Matt Hall. Since he was old enough to notice planes, Matt wanted to be a pilot, flying with his dad in a glider, making models at home and meeting officers of the Air Force fueled his ambition. So when he was accepted for a AAF pilot training, a dream come true. From the rigours of his first job in aviation as an F-A-18 Hornet pilot to combat over Iraq in the Battle of Baghdad to his post-Air Force career as a professional air racer, Matt has survived near-fatal situations. Graduated as RAAF pilot in July 92, posted to fighters, 77 Squadron and 3 Squadron, completed FCI course and graduated ducks, posted to instruct at number two operational conversion unit, posted to the United States of America on F-15E exchange duties, including combat operations in Iraq, posted back to 2OCU for chief instructor for fighter combat instructors course, then posted as three squadron executive officer. He retired in January 2009 to start racing and became the first Australian ever to compete in the Red Bull Air Race World Championships, the fastest motorsport series on the planet, and finished the season third overall to become the first rookie in history to end his debut season on the podium. Matt has since won seven rounds of the race and finished runner-up in the world title standings three times. Last year, he trumped all of that when he became Australia's first and only Red Bull Air Race World Champion. While he is taking a break from racing, he has started a corporate aviation business and an aircraft maintenance business based out of his own airfield at Lake Macquarie. I incidentally would add, and you should read it, he's the author of the biography, The Sky Is Not The Limit. Matt, what a career. <laughs> it's uh, you read it like that, and I'm like, wow, how did I cram that in? <laughs> Actually, you've got a whole history of family. Dad and grandfather have been involved with planes, haven't they? Yeah, that's correct. My uh, my granddad, my, my dad's dad, he was a, a pilot in World War II uh, in the transport uh, sector, uh, light transport. I guess it was uh, all mostly light transport back then in today's comparisons. But uh, he didn't continue flying after the war, but my dad uh, followed in his footsteps uh, as becoming a pilot as well. And I guess yeah, that's what led me uh, to my passion of aviation. Did you... Was your grandfather still alive when you were old enough? When you were old enough to actually talk to him? Yeah, yeah. So I, I um, yeah, my my granddad uh, passed away. I was probably thirty five when he passed okay, away. So, so he uh, he'd seen a lot of my uh, my aviation career already, and we'd talked a lot about it. Um, you know, he had he um, he was very proud and had lots of photos of of, uh, of hornets up on uh, on the walls of his house and everything. Yeah. And it was great talking to him about um, about his flying, and it was uh, even greater to be able to take him flying in uh, in some I could imagine so when you were young primary school age grandfather there father there both had to do with a pop bit flying how did that influence you what were the things you spoke about and enjoyed and remembered um 
Oh, yeah, I've always had the, you know, the I guess the romantic vision of aviation is the, the freedom of aviation. And, um, you know, just, just listening to my, my granddad, he, he, you know, is classic, uh, classic of that era that he wouldn't talk a lot about, you know, the war or anything like sure. that. But he'd talk about uh, things, you know, when he was flying um, uh, either an, an Anson or an Oxford, um, you know, taking off, you know, basically overweight out of, uh, out of uh, you know, PNG or something like that, staggering off the side of a, <laughs> of a cliff in a plane, picking up airspeed by falling off the side. Um, and then uh, if, I think he, yeah, from memory, he said it was something um, in one of the aircraft, I don't recall exactly, but it was uh, 147 wines of the, um, of the handle to bring the gear up after takeoff. And, you know, he, he was talking about, you know, once he was descending towards the water after takeoff, trying to wind the gear up furiously <laughs> so the plane would climb away. So it just gives you a different perspective on, um, you know, flying those types of aircraft compared to, you know, what I've grown up flying. Yeah. I know that, all right, you had the father and the grandfather influence, but as a young person, what is it that really turned you on to planes? Why planes? I don't know. It's um, it, I've I've said to a lot of people that uh, I, I don't actually remember making a decision that I'm going to be a pilot. I don't remember thinking, "Wow, this is for me." Uh, it was just one of those things that I, I always had inside me. And I, the best I can do to have people understand the process is saying to someone, "When when did you decide that you are going to get a driver's license?" It's kind of one of those things that you. you it's just you, you it just happens. assume. You it just happens. assume it's going to happen. And for me. As far back as I remember, there was no there was no thought process of will I or won't I or it, why is this great. It was just this is what I want part to do. of my life. Yeah, this is uh, I you know I, I was more always more comfortable in and around aircraft than I was um, you know, doing normal kid stuff of playing in a playground. You could have joined the navy and flown, yep. but you joined the RAF. And was it 1990, 1991? 1991. Yeah, January ninety one. I uh, I I uh, signed up. So yeah. Do you remember the signing up process? Do you remember what how it went and what I you did? I certainly do. Tell me, tell it was me. Uh, it was an interesting uh, time actually because um, you know I'd, I'd finally made the decision because yeah, initially I was not planning to join the air force. I was I was thinking I'd be um, you know going to be a, a Qantas pilot or something like that, and um, and um, then I realised I couldn't actually afford to uh, to get my license, uh, my commercial license. I was already flying, um, but uh, on the day I signed up, the seventeenth of Jan, ninety uh, one, we were in the um, we were in the towers down there at uh, Sydney with my family. Uh, I can't remember the floor we're on, but it was up near the top floor of the uh, the Defence Force uh, Centre there. And um, the uh, fire alarm went off, and uh, the, one of the uh, the high-ranking people at this stage, I had no idea what rank was or anything, uh, comes into the room and says, um, "Does everyone's aware? Uh, there's a fire alarm. We have to evacuate the building." Because there's been a bomb threat, uh, and that is because uh, the US have just gone into Q8 um, uh, with armed forces. And if you look up the date, 17th of Jan uh, 1991, uh, that's basically when all that was happening. And they actually said, if there's anyone having second thoughts, you haven't signed the paperwork, so you can go home now. And uh, I think my mum looked at me going, let's go. <laughs> but instead we walked down the uh, the 40 flights of stairs um, out uh, out into the park over the road and finished off the uh, the signing there and then got on a bus and flew down to Melbourne to start my career. Fantastic, fantastic. How would you rate the training you received with the RAAF? Oh, it is it is first class. Um, you know, the yeah, I, I had um, done... Yeah, flying before I got in. Uh, you know, my dad. My dad basically taught me to fly in gliders when mm-hmm. I was you know, thirteen, you know, 12, 13 years old. 
I then uh, started formal training in gliders, went solo at 15. Uh, then um, my dad bought an ultralight, so he taught me to fly that. And then I was able to convert that into getting my restricted pilot's license. And what I found throughout that training process when I was a very young person was that the most stable influence was my dad being, hey, this is how to do it. And fortunately, fortunate for me, he was taught uh, in a military way by the uh, Air Force cadets when he was young. So he taught me in a reasonably disciplined manner. But what I also found was that everybody else that I was involved with in that training process outside of the Air Force had a different opinion. And the opinions could really change your style of flying. You know, mm. Are you using are you using power for airspeed or attitude for airspeed? Are you, you know how are you setting how are you setting and, and leveling out? You know do you, do you level out and pull the power and let the plane accelerate, or do you do you level out, let the plane accelerate, then pull the power? Um, so all those little intricacies changed your habits and your style of flying, and it made it very difficult to come up with a sure. with a technique. Whereas when we went into the military. It is the most standardized form of training you can get. So you know exactly what you're going to do. So you can prepare for it very well. Uh, you then get briefed by exactly the same standards and techniques. So it doesn't matter which instructor you're flying with, the flight is going to be 99% exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And as long as you do what you've been doing and you do what you've prepared to do, the flight will be a success and you'll then debrief and gain a lot from the debrief. And that's everything that was missing from uh, my initial training as a teenager. Mm. So that becomes part of, of almost an innate thing and you just respond because the training with the RAAF has given it to you. You just respond automatically. Exactly. And, you know, I've, I've said to a lot of people that my um, my parents raised me, but uh, the Air Force turned me into the man I am uh, because uh, they, you know, I probably wasn't wasn't the most disciplined person when I joined the Air Force. I was probably a bit of a rascal. Uh, I was probably I had a bit of an ego, um, and the Air Force was able to mould all of those ingredients and turn me into a very disciplined um, and a very uh, a very focused person and someone who's able to respond very well under pressure, which is not you know, me personally. That's just the, the, the product that I've, I became because of the training the Air Force uh, put into Wouldn't, me. though, the ego be an important – I don't mean ego, stand-out ego, but wouldn't that ego, uh, that self-confidence be a necessary ingredient to be allow yourself to be moulded by the training and therefore make it useful for yourself when you're flying, in whatever capacity? Very much so, and uh, you know, I think it's. I don't think you can really get an air, a successful Air Force pilot who doesn't have some ego inside them. Uh, it, you know, you need to be confident, and I guess where the where the problem comes is ego. Ego can turn into two different things. It can either turn into um, confidence or arrogance, and uh, if you don't catch ego early enough, it heads in, down the arrogance path, and arrogance is a very hard thing to to squash. Whereas um, if you take the ego of a young person and teach them how to be confident uh, with that ego, uh, then success is uh, unlimited. And you know, people ask me, what's the difference between confidence and, um, and arrogance? And um, uh, both, both uh, emotions involve um, unwavering uh, belief that you can be successful. A confident person, though, uses process and debriefs and listening and learning. An arrogant person believes they already know everything and won't listen mm. and uh, won't take feedback and will fight to tell people they're right. And that's that's the two differences of where the ego can go. And um, and the arrogance has no place in the military. And that's why, um, you know, uh, I think 
movies like Top Gun, they're great, but there's a lot of arrogance in that. And I think that then <laughs> sets this scene of fighter pilots. But uh, I think you'll struggle to find a fighter pilot who is, uh, in, especially in this day and age with the training, is, uh, is, is arrogant. They're all very confident, but uh, they all listen like you wouldn't believe. That film, Top Gun, I'd like to talk about in a moment. We'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that. I imagine that the, the fav- your favourite song is Take My Breath Away, but <laughs> we'll leave that alone. Um, all right, you're in the Air Force. You graduated in July 1992. Um, where were you posted? What happens next? Um, well, I knew that um, I knew that I needed to, uh, to, to live out my dream, which was uh, imagine flying those amazing fighter aircraft. Uh, I would need to uh, dux my, my course to, to guarantee the selection process into fighters. So I worked very hard and was able to you know, dux my one FDS and two FDS courses. And um, at that point, I was posted straight to 25 Squadron. Um, and 25 Squadron uh, back then was a feeder uh, unit to then go to 76 Squadron, which was the intro fighter squadron. Yep. Um, so uh, it was just next door to, to FDS, so I would be staying at uh, Pierce. Uh, but at the same at the same time of um, of the of the decade, uh, we'd had a few failures of the Mackie wing. So I was doing my training on PC nines, one mm. of the earlier PC nine courses, and the the wings of the Mackie uh, were becoming very concerning about their fatigue and we'd actually had a failure in a fatal accident because of a wing falling off a Mackie. What, so, while in flight? While in flight, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> so we uh, – basically the Mackies were grounded to all but one or two aircraft. Um, so I actually went to 25 Squadron and but maintained my flying on the PC-9 for a year, mm. basically in a holding pattern, just flying the PC-9 around but you know, flying fighter tactics – in a PC nine, waiting mm. for the the Mackie to uh, you know we did a, had a wing replacement program, so more Mackies came online that we could pull G in again, and then I went on to the Mackie at that point, and then came back over to Williamtown. Okay, and was it at Williamtown that you had your first experience with the FA 18s? That's correct. Yeah, so I was at seventy six Squadron flying Mackies, um, you know the intro fighter course, and then what they call ops flight, which is honing your skills as a fighter pilot in the uh, the leading jet. And I was up at um, at Townsville, actually, uh, supporting the F-18 operational conversion uh, up there as a, you know, we were what's called bandits. You know, we, we would fly around um, and then try and uh, try and shoot down the F-18s, which is quite a quite an ask for a little Mackie to shoot down an F-18. But yeah. Were you successful? Uh, I, I don't think I was. I think I was, you know, we were, we would just basically go and have our best and have some fun knowing we we're going to get shot down. Yeah. But uh, the, the part of the reward for doing a good job of that was uh, they'd, they'd take us for a ride in the back seat of, um, of, uh, of an F-18 and um, I remember my first my first flight in F-18 was with uh, with Dano Wong and uh, and uh, jumping in the back with him um, I was I was just absolutely amazed at the uh, the acceleration and the speed of the aircraft like every every other aircraft I've ever flown um, the the throttles increased the noise of the aircraft and then the aircraft would slowly start to accelerate um, you know, if you push the throttle up with, with an F-18, what I realised almost instantaneously is uh, the, the throttles are effectively speed levers. You put them in a position, the aircraft basically rapidly accelerates to a speed that correlates with the position of the throttles. So, um, you know, you, you, you didn't use them as a, I want to go faster or go slower. You put them at a position effectively and then the aircraft sat at a speed and just went along. So It's like uh, cruise control. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, it was uh, just an amazing, uh, you know, amazing aircraft to sit in for the first time and realize that this plane could just 
continue to accelerate it if you wanted it to. Speaking to a, a number of other people about the different aircraft and their different capabilities, you talked about the Mackie versus the F-18 and blah, blah, blah. I was led to believe that from the F-18 onwards maybe or even from now the F-35s that a jet fighter's role now is not necessarily to get involved in a dogfight but to sit off and use the technology of the aircraft to do what it ever has to do. Is that, was that the case then or has that only come about recently? Uh, that, that's probably more come about in the last um, 10 to 15 years. When, when I started the F-18, it was still uh, a visual fighter. Uh, you know, we, we flew visual formations. Um, we, we did visual weapons deliveries. Uh, we did uh, visual engagements, you know, mm. the old dogfight. Uh, and it was about how could get who who could get into the best posture entering entering the merge is the sure. way we, we say it, um, and that was because uh, you know uh, there'd been so many times where uh, the wrong aircraft's been shot down in combat, so you needed mm. to get in there with the human eyeball and actually see who you're shooting down. Uh, obviously, if someone starts shooting back at you, there's a pretty you, good you chance. Know you know, you a pretty good <laughs> chance they're uh, the enemy. So you, if they shoot at you, you can shoot back at them with the long range weapons. But um, you know the the chance the the escalation that happens from a long range shoot down is, is massive. So typically, even now, if you are at the start of a conflict and people are doing patrols, you, you're going to have to have the ability in a fighter to still go in and identify and sure. escort, uh, but with the ability that if they suddenly go hostile on you, you can uh, deal with it. But as you say, uh, the uh, the current generation of fighters, even the F-18 as it's being retired out um, through to now the F-35, they're uh, BVR aircraft, which is beyond visual range. Even the wingmen do not see each other during the flight. Sure. So in a, in a dogfight from a pilot's point of view, in the tactics involved, does the, does the plane that has the height have the advantage over a plane that is lower? They're... they're Typically, for that's for the uh, the longer range stuff. Um, it's it's the altitude's not as much of a factor anymore because we've got so much power. Uh, typically, you're actually entering the merge with the power back to slow down, uh, and the reason for that is uh, you know, the aircraft can only pull a certain amount of g, and once you've reached an airspeed where you can get to that g, mm. now all that happens is your turn circle opens up, which means that people can get inside you and shoot you. So right. you right. actually want to enter at a certain speed. So if you're coming down a hill to enter a fight, you may actually be going too fast. How did you get involved in the Battle of Baghdad? Uh, so I was, I was uh, instructing at um, 2OCU here at Williamtown and um, as a fighter combat instructor and uh, picked up the, uh, the USAF exchange, which is an F-15E mm. exchange. So... Um, I was told I'd be heading over to America um, at the end of uh, 2001. I was told that in about you know, April, May of 2001. This is pre-9-11. Yeah, so 9-11 actually occurred between me being told I was heading to America and actually when I went to America. Right. So uh, you know, initially I was like, hey, you're going to America. It's a, it's a three-year posting where you'll be uh, instructing at one of their uh, units. You, know, you go over, you do a, an exchange program. Uh, sorry, a, a, uh, an exchange where one of their instructors comes to to OCU to instruct yep. on the Hornet. I go over there, I do a conversion onto their 15, and then I start instructing their guys and girls how to how to fly it. Um, I went over and basically um, uh, Operation Noble Eagle was on, which was yes. uh, capped overhead the White House. Yep. Um, that there was 24-7 uh, combat air patrols overhead the American White House, unbelievable, um, to defend against airliners. 
and uh, you know the 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 atmosphere when I got there was it was a country that was at war with um, with a basically an invisible mm. assailant. Mm. Uh, so uh, tensions were quite high, and um, I finished my conversion. And then um, at the end of my conversion, basically they pulled me aside and said, "We've got nothing more for you to do because we're deploying, uh, and because you're a, a foreign national, um, you know we can't take you." Uh, which was quite disappointing for me. Not not that I wanted to go to war to kill people. Uh, I wanted to go and support my own my own sure. uh, brethren uh, in combat. Uh, as it turned out, there was um, some sort of d- diplomatic negotiations going on in the background that I was actually unaware of. Uh, and it was in fact after my squadron left, or one of the squadrons left, uh, I got called into the the boss's office uh, in. Boss American. American or Boss, Boss American, yeah. actually. And uh, and he said, hey, uh, we've actually been negotiating. Uh, you're cleared to um, to head to uh, the Middle East uh, in three days' time. You know, basically, get your, get your poo in a pile and, uh, and off you go. And, uh, yeah, so I ended up um, doing a rapid deployment um, uh, training and uh, actually flew over there on an airline with a couple of other guys. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Got there just before the shooting started, and then uh, did one quick sortie uh, at the local, um, local. So you area. were involved. You actually took part in that. Yes, yes. So uh, yeah, so uh, just got there, got organised, and then um, uh, day one of the shooting match, uh, off off I went into uh, Baghdad. So were you then an Australian flying an American plane with other Americans? That's correct. So yeah, I was uh, I was in my American squadron, uh, still with Australian rank uh, and an Australian flag on my shoulder. Um, I actually had a unique set of uh, rules of engagement written for me um, by Australia or by America. A combined effort. So um, because I I had to work on the most limiting rules of engagement. Uh, so yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't go be in an American squadron as an American citizen. Sorry, as an Australian citizen. And break what Australia has uh, signed off on on rules of engagement and yep. Geneva Convention, yep. etc. Yep. Um, there were certain things I wasn't allowed to do that my squadron was actually allowed to do. Same, same. There were certain things that the American squadron wasn't allowed to do that Australia had um, uh, ability to do. Um, and I wasn't, as an Australian citizen, I wasn't allowed to, um, you know, use my sovereign right of Australian defence while I was in an American squadron using their assets. Fabulous. You were awarded Fighter Pilot of the Year, is that right? That's correct, w- yeah. What's involved in, in getting that honour? Uh, it's, it's, I guess it's probably just uh, recognition from, um, from um, not necessarily peers, probably more the management of, uh, of 81 Wing at the time. Right. And so all the COs, the COs and XOs and FCIs of, uh, of, of the Wing get together and figure out, I guess, who the who the uh, most uh, most capable young fighter pilot, well, not even young at that stage, you know, who's the most capable fighter pilot, who's putting the most the most um, uh, effort in, who's putting the uh, making the, the biggest difference to sure, uh, to sure. operations and everything. So, uh, yeah, I was uh, I was um, honoured to receive that in '97, I think it was. Flying really is in your blood, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah because yeah. you also got Chief of Air Force commendation as well. Yeah, and that was um, that was uh, for my efforts when I was running the fighter combat instructor course. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I guess uh, I get a little bit embarrassed with awards. So uh, yeah, I basically say someone has to get them. So well, I was just lucky import- to get them. It's important <laughs> to mention them because you deserve them. Uh, you've had some near fatal situations. Can you take us through some of those? Yeah, there's uh, there's a couple that spring to mind uh, in fighters. Um, 
in fighters, there's probably three that uh, spring straight up. Uh, one when I was a very young uh, Hornet pilot that uh, I was doing a, a strafe pass at Saltash, just north of here at Williamtown, and um, I was too uh, too focused on the target and, and had what's called target fixation. Um, it just so happened at the same time the aircraft had a had a ranging issue and told me I was further away from the ground. So rather than seeing that there was a ranging issue and, and seeing how close I was to the ground, I just believed the aircraft uh, and continued to drive into the target. So uh, in that one, you know, uh, it, it's hard to know how, how close I was but the the RSO the range safety officer uh, fouled me for it and actually uh, phoned up my boss at, uh, at at the squadron and said one of your boys just nearly killed himself and his estimation was uh, my tail went between the posts of the strafe rag so I'd be guessing maybe 20 feet off the ground at uh, in an F-18 um, and that, when that happened I was I had a realization a split second before so I was at full back stick um, recovering uh, away from the ground on that one uh, I guess the the next one was um, I had a a near miss um, with well, another actually, plane. You call it a near hit, I guess. Uh, it's a, a, a close proximity to another aircraft, one eighty out, where um, uh, it was a, during a what's called uh, an a, uh, an ACM air combat maneuvering. Um, there was three of us out there maneuvering against each other to try and uh, I was the bad guy and there were two good guys trying to uh, take out the bad guy uh, and it nearly occurred real time where we ended up um, passing 180 out uh, both aircraft uh, blind on each other not able to sure. see not able to visually see each other and uh, the the last frame of my HUD footage is completely um, eclipsed by one afterburner uh, of the other aircraft so uh, they they estimate or from the, the reconstruction footage, they think our wings should have hit, so they're not sure how our wings didn't actually rip each other off. Um, and they think the, uh, the after, his afterburner missed my head by less than a foot, uh, mm. 180 out. So, uh, yeah, fairly, fairly high closing velocities, um, and, um, and that's, that's where it is just luck. Yeah. When you spent, was it, three years in the United States of America with F-15s and we were out of Baghdad, etc., what was the relation, what, yeah, what is, what was the relationship like between Australian and American in the force? Uh, it, absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, they, um, I've got to admit, I was, um, I was uh, not sure what I was walking into. Uh, you know, I was, I was going to... Uh, an air force that's uh, you know highly regarded as you know, one of the best in the world, um, but I think the Australian Air Force is one of the best in the world. So um, they're much bigger than us. Their equipment is you know typically you know just that next level above us. Sure. And I didn't know whether I was going to be walking into a, a system of uh, you know uh, what would you know um, you know you're just our poor cousin from Australia, but um, they definitely acknowledged our training and discipline uh, to the point where. Uh, you know, they came and asked questions you know, on a regular basis of what's my opinion on something that's occurring in their air force. Uh, they, you know, I was, I was promoted while I was there and became a flight commander in in their squadron to help run the squadron. So um, they definitely, you know, uh, appreciated uh, our efforts and our um, our training and our disciplines. Um, um, and same, same, you know, it, it goes both ways that. Uh, we we appreciated their knowledge and their structure. You know, we we uh, you know, myself, the the pilot before me, Paul Simmons, um, the pilot after me, Adam mm. Lung. We we um, we gained a lot of information from them about how they how they ran their tactics, uh, which were very similar to ours, but subtle differences. And we would come back and discuss it in Australia and say, you know, 
are we doing everything as well as we can in the RAF or do we need to change this? Or we'd go back to the USAF and go, we've looked at it, we think our way is better and they would actually adopt some of the ways we, we were doing business. So would you say then that an American person who comes to the Australian Air Force and vice versa are going to feel quite comfortable in, in terms of the similarity of training between the two countries? Very much so. And, that, and that's, that's uh, you know, there's, there's two reasons we do, we do exchange programs. So, um, the first one is to cross-pollinate tactics yep. so that uh, if there's conflict, you know, the, the gone are the days ever again that a country goes to war on its own. Uh, they're always going to have uh, alliances with other countries mm. that turn up and, and work with them. And the closer aligned the tactics and procedures are at that point, the more seamless uh, that you know, we'll be able to work together. So that's, that's the first reason for the exchange program. And uh, the second reason for the exchange program is, is to develop networks. Mm. Um, so you get to, you know, you create some great friendships on exchange programs and you continue to nurture them. You know, my, my squadron boss um, uh, at the time in, uh, when I was on exchange in America, he had previously been on exchange in Australia as, as a USAF exchange officer on the Hornet and he is now um, the uh, commander of the Air Combat uh, Command. Currently. Uh, currently in Langley. He's the, he's the second in charge of the entire USAF, Air, USAF at the moment. Oh, there and you go. They're the... They're the they're the, the links that you make through exchange programs. You mentioned, and I wanted to mention it, the film Top Gun. Did you ever see it? <laughs> uh, I've heard of it. Oh, you uh, haven't seen it? No. I agree. Okay. Well, do me um, a favour at some stage. Get it, get it out on DVD and watch it and, and ask yourself, which of those two pilots am I, Tom Cruise or the other guy? But we'll let, we'll let that go by seeing you haven't seen it. And the film came out in 1986. Anyway, uh, your yeah, book, I, I, The Sky... I did see it. <laughs> yeah, you animal. <laughs> so who do you identify with? Uh, I think um, I'm, I'm uh, more maverick, uh, yeah, because... Um, I I am a seat of the pants sort of guy. Uh, you know, I do a lot, put a lot of effort and a lot of study in. Uh, but when it comes down to it, I uh, I just look at um, what's what are my options uh, and use gut instinct to make the correct decision. Okay, your book, The Sky Is Not the Limit. Why the title, and why did you write it? Um. I wrote it uh, on the encouragement of my wife. Actually, um, she she basically said, "Yeah, you know, I'd been already been racing, and racing stopped for a couple of years, and I was sort of floundering a little bit, wondering what to do with myself when I grew up." And uh, <laughs> and and she said, "Well, just go go write down everything you've done so far. Just figure out what you want to do, and yeah, you'll probably see some uh, some great threads and great life stories coming out that will help help guide you." Um, so I started writing with uh, with a friend of mine, and just just recording actually, just recording all of my stories, and uh, then we thought, you know what, let's let's start putting this in for um, for a book, and we actually got a book deal out of it, um, and you know, so it was it more it initially started as basically a, a self fulfilling um, purpose to just document my own thoughts. Sure. It ended up being uh, probably one of the most cathartic things you could do. Um, like I, I would highly recommend everybody should do if you're not going to publish, at least, at least get your thoughts down, you know, for your whole life about everything you've learned and what you've done, um, just so that you can remind yourself what your moral pillars are and where mm. your strengths are and where your focus points should be, what to be appreciative of. Um, the the title itself that was actually from the um, the publishers. Um, oh, was their yeah, idea? I, I had I had my own uh, my own thoughts at, of what I wanted to call it, which I'll keep to myself because I'm I'm still planning on uh, putting out a, a second, second book. book. Good yeah. on you. I won't ask you to, <laughs> to reveal any of that. All right, okay. 
you have a rather unique position, the only Australian to win Red Bull. Um, we'll talk about it in some detail, but what is the connection from RAAF to, uh, to Red Bull Racing? How, how did that develop? How did that occur? Um, I was, was – actually when I was still in America, uh, I – I came back out of the the combat operations, mm. and uh, there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a plateau, a little bit of um, you know what now sort of thing. So here I was uh, living in America on an exchange, flying F-15s, um, and I realised I was missing a challenge. And um, it sounds really weird to be saying you know, you're flying F-15s in a foreign country and you and you're lacking a challenge. But when when you look at everything up until that point, you know, just just turned thirty. Uh, I was a fighter combat instructor on F-18s. Um, I was a now a you know a, a senior like starting to move into the senior officer ranks on an F-15. I've been in combat operations. You go well. Where's what's next? What's the challenge? Um, and it is actually mildly depressing to uh, to think you know is it uh, it's a slippery slope from here that you know is it all downhill from here as a as a 30, 31 year old sort of person. And um, so I actually. Uh, I actually gave myself a challenge. I, I decided that um, I'm going to go and buy an aerobatic plane and, and push myself in aerobatics. I want to see how good I am. You know, I, I've, set, I've set my mark in the military, but I wanted to go and say, well, how, how do I rate on, in the civilian world in aviation? Mm-hmm. So I bought myself an aerobatic plane, started doing aerobatic competitions. While you're still in the RAF? While I was still in the RAF in, the, in America yep. at the time. And uh, and so flying on these competitions on weekends, I, I found it uh, you know, thrilling to, to go and fly these planes and, and be measured with fine accuracy and given a score. You know, you, you know, you get you get scored when you're on pilot's course, but it's a, you know, you do the you do the whole flight and you get a, a three or a four or five, whatever the score is, mm. for for a whole day's effort. Whereas in aerobatics, you're given a a score for every particular maneuver you do on a flight, and so it was a great way of actually critiquing and getting better. And uh, I applied all of my my Air Force disciplines that I'd that I'd learned about, you know, prepare, preparation, knowing what's uh, expected of me, the way I'm going to do it, and then debriefing afterwards. And uh, I, I got a reasonable amount of success very quickly in aerobatic competitions. Um, at the same time in America, I went to uh, the Reno Air Race, uh, and there was a side act there at the Reno Air Race called the Red Bull Air Race that was uh, a couple of guys in aerobatic planes racing around uh, these inflatable pylons and uh, it's like well that's that's kind of pretty pretty cool to watch imagine doing that didn't really occur to me that i'd be involved in that but uh, ultimately i ended up back in australia doing some aerobatic competitions back here and um, went to the first air race in perth uh, where the red bull air race turned up there and uh, got chatting to uh, one of the pilots there who uh, who knew my boss yep. um, and uh, he basically suggested it was nigel lamb and he suggested you're the sort of guy we're looking for because you know you're uh, you're you're a military pilot, so you've got you know you're cool, calm, and collected under pressure, uh, and you also fly aerobatic competitions on weekends. It's like you're you know, you're exactly the sort of person we're looking for. You should have a chat with uh, with my boss. So I ended up chatting with the boss. Um, had to do a whole heap of training, but yeah, one thing led to another. And uh, is Red Bull an American? No, creation? Bull, no, it's a it's a uh, an Austrian creation. So they're based in Salzburg. Okay, um, but. The, the race itself had pilots from all around the world, obviously. So, um, and most of those pilots, do they all have a? No, do most of them have a military background, or do they come from aerobatics? 
most of them came from aerobatics. Uh, they, they were all professional pilots, so they all flew for a career as either either in uh, the airlines or as um, as uh, aerobatic uh, instructors or display pilots, sure. etc. Um, but uh, there was only been, uh, I think, two other guys that had been military, and they had long ago been military uh and then in the meantime been airline pilots etc whereas i was the first person to still have current still be flying in the air force as i was training to become an air race pilot that did actually become a bit more of a standard as um, a lot of fighter pilots around the world went that looks like a pretty good retirement gig maybe i need to get into that so how did the raaf uh, receive the knowledge that on the weekends someone we're paying is in these other competitions. Were they happy with that? Uh, I had to do um, uh, paperwork because so, uh, the Air Force, yeah, they don't, you wouldn't really say they own you, but they're very interested in uh, how you're treating yourself. Um, they don't want you to go and um, injure yourself so you can't fly after having invested you know, a couple of hundred million dollars in you yes. uh, in, the, in the flying and the training and the, and the work. So, um, you have to apply to do uh, hobbies that have any sort of risk associated with okay. them. Um, so I put the application in. Initially, it wasn't too bad when I was doing stuff in Australia. Uh, but then when I said I'm gonna, I had to go and start training overseas while I was still in the Air Force, um, initially there was a bit of pushback from it. Uh, but uh, with a little bit of negotiation, um, possibly a little bit of... Uh, I wouldn't say threatening, but uh, you know, I, I had my resignation and said, "Well, it's um, you know, I'm going to resign if you, unless you let me do this training." And then they they under and you know, we talked about it and they saw the benefits actually that you know um, there was some promotional aspects that the Air Force could use as well. That uh, you mm. know, if one of if one of their own uh, manages to step into this elite motorsport, uh, that's pretty good. Um, a pretty good, good PR, uh, for, PR the, for them. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and, and that's exactly how it worked out. Now, tell me about the planes. I, I did a little, I watched a, I watched your winning on YouTube, and the rules. You, you, every plane has to be pretty much the same, same size engine, same dimensions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it really does come down to the skill of the pilot. Yeah, there are certain things you can do in the aircraft, but pretty much, um, you know, they're. They're, they're almost identical. You can change the handling setup. You can change how slightly how you cool the engines. Uh, you can't change the prop. You, the engine itself is a sealed unit that uh, they're manufactured, they're uh, blueprint manufacturing uh, by Lycoming. So, and then they're lottoed out. It's like, here's your engine for the season. So you just get whatever's given okay. to you. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're pretty much um, identical in performance. How did you go on your first race, 2009? First race actually went reasonably well. So um, as a, at that point, it was a 15-team race. Uh, and there were four rookies, so myself included, uh, turning up to it the first race. And all of the, the current race pilots were looking at us, like having a bit of a giggle at, oh, check out the new guys sort of thing. <laughs> and, um, and I actually uh, I surprised a few of them by coming fifth in the first race. And, uh, really? In fact, there was, there, was, there was one particular guy who was, uh, he was pretty upset with that because uh, he, he was um, – he was uh, ridic- quite quite ridiculing and, uh, you know, uh, maybe in five years uh, you, you figure out what this is about. But uh, just because you're a fighter pilot doesn't mean you uh, can come in here and be uh, be the king. You're now back to being uh, being a nobody and then um, I beat him uh, all year round, actually. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. This is a big financial investment too, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, we mortgaged the house to uh, to commit into this. Uh, so, you know, there was no How did guarantee- your wife feel? 
she was actually the one pushing me to do it, saying, "Yeah, go." Well, for she it. made you made you write the book, so exactly. So she was uh, she was very very keen for me to uh, to get out there and have a have a go. So um, yeah, we we did take some personal financial risk. You know, we didn't we didn't uh, we didn't cash in everything. We have a, we had exit strategies in place that sure. wouldn't ruin us. But you know, there was a there was a very large uh, personal uh, um, uh, financial commitment to uh, to get that ball rolling and all those things. Uh, you know, I fell back on everything I knew from my eighteen year career of how to how to how to manage a team, how to manage people, how to manage personalities, how to manage equipment, uh, how to manage myself mm. to make sure I was completely focused and uh, in the zone as I went into the track each time. And then most, most importantly, the you know, the biggest thing I ever tell anyone is how to get the most out of a post-flight debrief so that the next time you strap a plane on your back, you are going to be better than you were the last time. Mm. Your first podium was what year? Same year, 2009. You got onto the podium in your first year. Yeah, yeah, I was the first uh, first rookie to ever do that. <laughs> <clears throat> You've had a lot of firsts in your life, uh, Matt. How many children have you got? Uh, I've got uh, two stepchildren and uh, and my own son Mitchell. And is he have wings in his blood? No, no, he's not that interested in flying. Uh, he may become interested. He flies with me, but he's not that interested in flying. How old is he? He's now uh, 15. 15, oh, yeah. okay. Yep. All right. Um, now, you went from the MXS to the Zivco Edge. Is that what it's called, Zivco Edge? That's correct. Yep. Why the change in planes? What? That wasn't until the end of 2016. Uh, and what had happened was I actually there was a problem with my MXS at the end of, of the season in 2016. And um, basically, uh, the skin came, cracked off the uh, one of the fuel tank ribs um, slightly. We picked it up because there was a fuel leak, and um, I was I was asking uh, engineers on how to fix it, uh, including my own engineer. And I was getting lots of opinions, being from the, in the aircraft manufacturer saying it's not a problem, just scuff it up and glue it back in place. <laughs> from the, in the manufacturer, through to other engineers going, uh, the plane is uh, completely unserviceable; it should never fly again. And um, my desire was obviously to fly it again because it's you know it's my race plane, it's a lot of money, but I couldn't um, I couldn't put myself in a situation of flying something that I've been recommended that it's unsafe, yep. even though the manufacturer was saying it's perfectly fine. Um, so because of the, um, you know, the, the lack of margin that we operate on, you know, we're down at you know, uh, 10 metres off the surface of the earth doing um, you know, 400 kilometres an hour and pulling 12G, uh, there's no room for uh, structural failures. No. So... Um, what I decided was that uh, rather than either just throw the plane out or quickly fix it so I could go to the next race, uh, I was better to just bite the bullet and buy a brand new aircraft. Um, the reason I chose a different aircraft was that it was like, well, uh, yeah, there, there were really just two aircraft racing in the series, the MXS, which I owned, and the Edge. Um, and I thought, well, I might as well see what the other, the other side's like. So... Since I can start from scratch, I, I bought an Edge, um, and then that took the you know, put more financial pressure on me, obviously, to buy yeah. a brand new race plane. But it took the timeline pressure off me to fix something um, in a rush. And uh, once again, that's the military side of me coming out as a if it's important, don't rush it and remove all pressure for the decision process. Well, it's in the Zivco, is it not, that you become the only Australian ever to 
the world champion in the Red Bull series. That's correct, yeah. So uh, 2017, we we got a few podiums, but we're rebuilding our knowledge base on how to operate the new type of aircraft. Yeah. Uh, 2018, uh, we, we won, started winning races again, uh, came second in the world. In 2019, um, yeah, we became the world you champion. You became the world champion. So has the, the racing plane been a f- more fun plane to fly than any of the jets that you've flown in the past? Oh, it's hard to it's hard to define fun. Um, you know, people are always saying to me, yeah, what's my favourite plane? No, and, I wasn't going to ask yeah, that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as far as fun, I would say um, yes, apart from, um, you know, there are certain things that uh, the jets do that you can't do in uh, my race plane. Like, you, you know, sh- dropping, dropping bombs and shooting the gun and uh, those sort <laughs> yeah, of things. Yeah. That, that's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, going, going supersonic across the tops of clouds inverted is, uh, is pretty cool stuff. But um, being able to, uh, you know, the, the race planes out-accelerate, out-roll, out-turn um, the, the, the fighters. You know, in pure performance, the only things the fighters can do that, uh, and beat my race plane is top-end speed and altitude. Apart from that, um, you know, the, the F-18, for example, pulls 7.5G and my MXS pulls 12. Four, 14. 14. Actually. Yeah, so it's a... What does that do to the body? Uh, it shrinks you. <laughs> <laughs> it really does uh, put the body under a lot of pressure. And, you know, when I was flying fighters, I stayed fit and I thought I was fit. But uh, since I started racing, um, you know, I've entered a different level of fitness altogether to make sure that, uh, you know, I think you know, normal people rely on their bone structure for their... For their for their strength you yep. know, and have muscles around their bones and you know to be you know doing what i'm doing it's the exob- the opposite the uh your bones are there uh to allow you to exercise to have your muscles uh, support the body so how would you rate your 18 years in the rwaf in in terms of setting you up for this new career and the business that you run in aviation as well oh it's uh 98 of it actually the um if uh, if I hadn't have joined the military, uh, I'd probably be either in jail or dead. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> as I said, I was a bit of a rascal. Mm. Um, but yeah, maybe that's an exaggeration. But I'm not sure I would have been as driven and and, um, and methodical as I am now. So um, the the way I conduct myself, um, yeah, morally, the way I the way I run my business, the way I I approach risk. Uh, it's it all comes from my military training. Someone listening to you now who doesn't quite know they're young, they don't quite know what to do. Why would let's stay with the RAAF, Australian Defence Force? Why is joining the RAF a good option now for someone who's not in the RAF? It's uh, it's a good option because of the the training which which turns you into, if you're not already, uh, a, a great person. Um, you get to operate the world's best machinery. You generate the world's best um, relationships with people. The camaraderie is uh, second to none. You know, I, I, when I was growing up, you know, you'd hear stories about um, uh, people in war sacrificing themselves for their mates, and mm. and it was it was un fathomable to as a teenager to go how how would someone do that why would they do that you know Mm. it's your own life it's not until you're in the military and you and you generate these uh, relationships with your peers uh, uh, that you 
understand that you would step in harm's way at the drop of a hat to protect your mm. peers. I suppose that's best most recently demonstrated by the posthumous award of VC to Teddy Sheehan from the Navy in terms of he went back to the gun and sacrificed his own life to save his mates. Very much so. And uh, and when I said earlier that uh, you know when my squadron left for combat, my American squadron left for combat and left me behind and you know, I was I was very disappointed. Uh, as I said, it wasn't because I wanted to go to war and and drop bombs on a city. Um, I needed to be there with my squadron to keep them alive. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.